Hey everybody, welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast, dedicated to raising awareness, sharing IBD stories, and offering support for those with Crohn's and colitis. Together, we can share knowledge, experiences, and help show the world the many faces of IBD. Well, hi everyone. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior since 2006 and lifelong fitness fanatic. My guest today is Jenny Pasco, who's here to share her journey with Crohn's disease and how it took 10 years of symptoms and a capsule endoscopy to finally get an official diagnosis and on the path to healing. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jenny, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm more than happy to be here. I'm excited to have you. So as my listeners know, I like to start off our interviews by asking about your Crohn's story. So why don't you jump right in and talk about your journey with IBD when you first started having symptoms and how you finally got your diagnosis? Okay, so um, it took like, what, 10, 11 years for my diagnosis, so it was quite a long time. Uh, I first started having problems when I was about 16 and 17. Um, at first, I thought it was just like, you know, bad stomach bug, just used to rest up for a couple of days, um, sometimes a whole week, mm-hmm. and then just carry on with life. Um, and then it would just happen like two months later, and then, then it would happen every two weeks, and then it started happening every week. And I was like, this is not, this is not okay. Um, so I started going to the doctors. I was always like fobbed off and told I was fine, just stress or hormones or whatever, or I just had to get on with it and I need to stop eating, change my diet. Uh, so I sort of put up with it for quite a while, really, probably longer than I should have done. Um, but eventually my parents were getting quite concerned. So we went back and I finally had a doctor who actually listened to what I was saying. Um, so I went and had like blood tests and things like that done. Um, I had like a whole year of blood tests, endoscopies, colonoscopies, MRI scans, CT scans, more colonoscopies and just tests coming out of my ears um but every result came back as within the normal range as what i was told so in the end after about a year and a half of going back and forth to the hospital and doctors um they just discharged me and gave me an IV, ibs diagnosis um and my consultant basically said to me none of my symptoms really match ibs but we don't know what else it could be because my results keep coming back as normal so that's what it is for now and basically i just had to get on with it is what he <laughs> told me. Wow. And how, how old were you when all that was happening? Because you first started having symptoms around 16? 16, yeah. So by the time I was out of the hospital the first time and like discharged, I was about 18. And yeah, like I was literally just told like, your tests keep going back normal, so you just need to get on with it. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So nothing was really fixed at that point and it was slowly getting worse. So I, I, at one point I lost two stone in the space of two weeks. And that wasn't quite enough because I was, I've never been like skinny. I, I, I used to be like a little bit overweight when I was a kid, but I've, and I've never been like obese, but I've never been bone skinny because I've always been quite fit. I've always been quite muscular. I've always been quite strong. Um, so my, in terms of like my BM, BMI and all that rubbish, mm-hmm. I've always been like average or slightly overweight for my height because I'm short. Um, so they didn't really care <laughs> if, to be honest, they didn't mm-hmm. seem to really care that this was happening to me and it obviously wasn't serious enough for them to want to look into it anymore. So it's almost the worst spot to be in when it's, 
it's miserable enough that it makes your life difficult and hard, but then it's like you're saying in your case, like the test just never came back normal. And so you're in this, almost this purgatory of just feeling horrible all the time. And there's no relief in sight of, and not knowing what to do either. I, th I at one point I thought, is it all, is it all in my head? Like, at that point, I had like some of my friends saying, "Oh, it's just all in your head," and I'm, I'm like, "Yeah, thanks." I'd, like, but it, these things are happening to me, and I didn't really know what. So I tried different diet. I tried like doing gluten free for a few months because one of my great 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 aunties years back was once celiac, so maybe that's it. And I tried like all sorts basically, and nothing really made it any better. But I just got on with it. I have like the. I'm the sort of person that just just gets on with life regardless. So, mm -hmm. like, I will turn up to work if I'm like on my deathbed, but I'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. And so I just did that, and I occasionally went to the doctor. So I started like it started getting worse, and I started like bleeding, which was quite scary for me because when that first happened, I was like, "Whoa, this is this is beyond mm -hmm. what it was like before." Like it's now like up to level. So I went back to the doctors a few times and. Again, I wasn't skinny enough, basically. So they were like, yeah, just keep, you know, just check in on your diet, make sure that, you know, and I'm like, I eat really healthily, thank you. But um, So yeah, I did, did just get on with it and until it got to the point where it was happening every single day and I spent all day scared that I was going to have an accident. So I spent three and a half years of my life not eating all day until I got home. And then I'd eat and then be really ill all night. But it, the only time I would eat was if I was in my own home because I was too anxious to eat anything anywhere else. And the only time I felt sort of well was if I was hungry or just had an empty stomach. And during that time, had you been going to the doctors at all or had you kind of stopped going to the doctor because they kept telling you that there's nothing wrong? Yeah, I went, I went to the doctor occasionally and it was more when my mom would be like, right, this is not on, let's go. Mm -hmm. But I never really saw a doctor that really listened. They were all, they, I think all they were looking for is someone who was like emaciated. Mm -hmm. uh, and they almost didn't care. They almost didn't really listen to the fact that I don't eat during the day and I couldn't eat anything without feeling really unwell. And they were like, oh, no, just try. Just have mm -hmm. soup or have stuff. And I was like, I physically can't eat anything. It was like at that point, it didn't even matter if I was sticking to all the foods that I knew didn't affect me because every food affected me. Like everything I put in my system just was rejected apart from water. That, that was my like saving grace. I had water and I had like vitamin supplements just to try and keep some sort of level. I mean, all this while I was a full-time teacher as well. So I was going into school every morning and teaching all day long and then coming home like marking all my books and planning more lessons and stuff like that and eating and being ill all night and then getting up and going back in the classroom the next day and teaching all day. So how long did that go on until you were finally, did that go on for a few years? Because it took total almost 10 years for your diagnosis. There was like, when I was first discharged from the hospital, obviously I, I went to university then so I had to get my degree. So it was a good like four year degree. And in that time, things just got worse I like I'd miss lectures sometimes or and sometimes doing the school placements was hard and I was that point I spent years juggling the diet because I thought well it must be the diet I need to do more diet and I need to try try that so I spent years doing that and then I graduated and 
I started, so I started teaching when I was 23, 24. Um, and it was in 2014. And mm-hmm. so I just threw myself into that. And, but from that moment, I wasn't eating during the day. I was only having like one meal a day. Mm-hmm. Occasionally I would eat like sweets, just mm-hmm. something sugary just to get me through the day, but very small. Um, and I, I'd like spoken to a couple of doctors. It wasn't until about two years into my teaching career, um, I moved, uh, we sold like our family home and I bought my own place and like I moved closer to where I was working. And then I had to obviously register with the different doctors. And I went in and saw this doctor and just told her my whole history. And she was specialized in gastro, like everything to do with gastrointestinal disorders and everything. And she was like, this is my passion. This is what I research. This is what I like. And what you're telling me is not okay. And so mm. she d- sent me straight back to the hospital with an urgent letter. And honestly, she saved my life. Like, I think I would have, I probably would have, like the way I was going, mm-hmm. like it wasn't a healthy lifestyle. I knew not eating wasn't, a he- it was healthy, but it was the only way I knew how to almost control it the best way I could at mm-hmm. the time. And her sending me back to the hospital was definitely what helped. Although getting there, it was still a battle. They still did blood tests and said, no, it's fine. Everything's normal. It wasn't until I had, I think it was, I had, I got glandular fever, uh, basically, because I was just so run down from having no nutrition. Um, so I spent three weeks off work there. And then after that, I just started picking up all the bugs up. Being a teacher, I was surrounded by viruses and colds and coughs and snotty children all the time anyway. <laughs> I picked up everything from chest infections to uh, ear infections and like tonsillitis and all sorts I like one it was like I was getting it one after the other oh, wow. and obviously I was constantly back in the doctor's surgery like asking for more of this and more of that and uh and then they did a blood test and my inflammation levels were up to 169 and they told me back then that they should be at around seven mm-hmm. so that's when they knew something wasn't right because but that's the only test I've ever, ever had that said it wasn't right. So then they sent me forward for this capsule endoscopy. And, oh, thank God I had that, basically, because I, I got a phone call two days after I'd had the capsule endoscopy, sent the results in, and they said, we found Crohn's. Wow. <laughs> I actually cried. I cried with relief. <laughs> <laughs> and the endoscopy, the capsule endoscopy was fairly recently, is that correct? Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, capsule endoscopy was last March last year uh, end of March last year because they rang me the beginning of April to say this is what we found so that's when I was diagnosed so what happened then did they start you on medication right away and then get you with that official diagnosis finally get you a path for treatment uh yeah so when they first rang me and said they found the ulcers and what he his description of it was you have ulcers on ulcers um inside like my, my ilium uh, where the Crohn's disease was. So mm-hmm. he said, we want to get you straight on steroids. So I had a prescription faxed to the pharmacy, which was currently where my flat was like downstairs. There's like a, a store and next door was a pharmacy and he faxed it that day. So I could pick it up that day. And I started on a really high um, strength steroid initially. And I was taking like, four, I think I had four tablets a day and I had that for a month and I had to try and wean off them and they wanted to see if that like helped initially 
while they sorted out the rest of my treatment. Um, and I tried to come off them after a month and my symptoms came back full whack. So I went back up. So I ended up being on steroids for about six months before I could finally get off them. Mm -hmm. And then about, it was in June. So I started steroids in April and in June last year, they put me on Humira, which are the, um, immune suppressant injections. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the highest loading dose they could because they said over the last two years, like, but what they said was, is back back in 2000 and, God, what was that, 2009, 2010, the hospital should have spotted and should have sent me for the capture endoscopy back then. So because I've been left so long, mm-hmm. my Crohn's was so bad, they had to give me as the highest of everything they possibly could to avoid surgery. How long did it take for you to finally get into remission once they started you on the high doses of Humira? Was it a few weeks, a couple of months? No, like I, I didn't feel the effects of the Humira for about six months, hmm. It was, which was frustrating for me in some ways because I was like, I'd, I'd read all about it. I'd heard like the side effects, but I'd also heard all the, the wonderful stories about people like on my social media platform that have been like Humira saved my life. Like it's really got me, you know, eating again. And I was so excited. I think I was almost impatient. So I started taking them in June and it wasn't till like October, November that I was like, oh, hang on a minute. Like. I'm having more good days now than I am bad days. Like that's a good sign. Then, then by Christmas, I was like, I'd say almost back to the normal me in terms of being able to eat. Um, it was more my anxiety that was holding me back then because obviously being so ill just made me so anxious about food in general, about being out and <laughs> eating food. Yeah. I was so like the anxiety was what was making almost making it worse but yeah it took six months i would say like obviously i'm a year on now over a year nearly a year and a half that i've been on humira and i'm not i don't think i'm yet in remission Mm -hmm. um but i know because i've recently i've recently actually been over to the states for the summer and when i came back my order for my next set of injections came late and in the time i was waiting for it i had like a really bad flare-up so I know that it's the injections that are stopping that from happening, which is like a good thing. But at the same time, I know that my body's not yet like completely mm-hmm. in remission, if that makes sense. It definitely does. And what a what a story and what a journey, because I, I've heard so many people who have shared a similar experience where doctor after doctor just keeps almost telling them like they told you that it's in their head or just you know, figure it out or, and it's such a difficult place to be in. And so I think it really illustrates how important it is for people to really find a gastroenterologist and someone, a doctor who will really listen to everything that you're going through and really care about what's happening and work to find a solution because what a, you know, what a journey to have to go through this for 10 years and not have any light at the end of the tunnel so to speak yeah it's like I can't fault like some of the doctors I've had I can't fault them because part part of it I think was my fault in the way that I'd go and see them and I'd almost downplay some of the symptoms because I'm I'm not the sort of person that breaks down in front of people easily so at home I'd have like I'd break down mm-hmm. and cry when I was when I was really ill but then you get to the doctor and be like yeah so it hurts sometimes this happens this happens like really matter of fact so I learned to like 
open up a bit more and be far more honest mm-hmm. and some of the consultants like a couple of the consultants even the one that discharged me like I can't I don't blame them because they're sitting there with all that paperwork and it's all saying that I'm in the normal range so there's some tests they couldn't send me for because they their superior were like well no because all the tests say they're normal so there's no reason for them to have that further test and I've had several conversations with them where they were in a battle with themselves that they wanted to give me more. They wanted to help me more, but because the Mm -hmm. facts on paper said that everything was fine, they physically couldn't do that. And that's where I think the problem lies. Like if someone's test results are saying normal, but they are still going through this horrific time, Mm -hmm. that's reason enough for me. Like the, you know, come around my house, watch what happens if I eat food, (laughs) you know, like, yeah, then, then send me for that test that I needed like years ago. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's quite complicated. I mean, I'm lucky over here because the NHS is free. Mm-hmm. So as much as I pay my taxes and stuff, like I can get this, all this medical stuff for free. So I'm so lucky. That is good. And I think I do want to highlight, cause I think you touched on an important point there of talking about how you learned to finally open up and talk a little bit more with your doctors, because hearing you say that, honestly, I have done the same thing many, many times myself where at home, I'm almost in tears when things are so bad. And I, I'm, you know, telling my husband or my family, and I'm going through all these things like this is going on, this is going on, this is going on. And then in the past, I've gone to the doctor, and I've kind of clammed up. And it's like, you know, how bad is your pain on a scale of one to 10? And it's like, well, I made it here today. And I'm, you know, I'm functioning. And, and then I downplay how bad I feel. And, and then I, I panic and I forget all the questions I was going to ask. And then I don't ask anything or I don't relay all the information I wanted to. And so I think that's a key point to really just kind of emphasize of, you know, take notes and make sure you communicate everything that you're wanting to with the doctor so that they can help you. Questions, write down questions, write down the key points. Like, I, I like kept a little diary in the end of this is what I'd eat and this is the re- this is the reaction I had this is how long it lasted pain on a scale of one to ten sometimes I wrote 50 you know like mm-hmm. um, and taking I, I always took some in the end I had to take someone with me so every time I went to the doctors went to the hospital I mean some days I needed someone with me because I physically couldn't drive myself but having someone in there that is more than willing to stand up and say no like this this is you know what you said isn't is worse than that like you know like Jen you know tell them exactly what happened that night and Mm -hmm. I can't fault my partner for that and and my parents like just saying they they helped my case I guess Mm -hmm. by like encouraging me to be really honest and open about everything and like your pain was definitely not just a five you know it was more like a 15 like be honest come on tell them that's a great tip to have someone with you and to really be that champion for you because I think we all need that at times. Yeah, because you don't like when you go through something like that every day, like until I have, I didn't realize, like, I almost feel like I was boring people with it. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's the same problem. Mm-hmm. And so that I think that's why you downplay it because you think, yep, I'm coming back to the same doctor for the same reason. Nothing's changed. Like, as much as that's reason in itself, like, you don't. I, ne- I needed that person there to be like, yeah, so nothing's changed. So what are we going to do about it now? Because what you suggested before clearly hasn't worked and she can't live like this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until my mum said to the consultant that she can't live like this, that I realized what my life had become and that, yeah. no, I couldn't live like that anymore. And I shouldn't have to either just because a 
some my something in my blood says it's normal. And I think that's what makes it hard is that because we live with it every single day, we have a tendency to almost normalize it because it's like we we have to get through the day. And so we kind of trick ourselves into thinking it's normal. And it takes that outside person to really just say, this is not normal. This something has to yeah. change. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I find it so easy now to just not eat all day because my body's got used to that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about food. You've tried a lot of different diets over the, the years that you were not on any medications. Talk to me about some of the things that you noticed over the years that were big trigger foods for you or if you had any safe foods. And tell me a little bit about that eating journey. So when I, when it, when I was first sort of in under the consultant at the hospital, like they also got me to meet up with the nutritionist who, if I'm perfectly honest, was not very helpful because I'd done a lot of research myself. So I started doing a food diary. I did it for about three or four months just, just to see that before my next appointment, if there was any trigger, the only trigger I initially found was caffeine. Like if I had a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, Mm -hmm. oh my god was I in pain straight away so straight away I just stopped having that I stopped having tea coffee altogether because I wasn't sure exactly what it was and it wasn't until I had like decaf tea that I realized it was probably the caffeine in it which meant that like I didn't drink coke anymore I didn't I, like I have to be careful how much chocolate I eat and like caffeine's in loads of things mm -hmm. so that was like a massive trigger for me like even now if I have caffeine like oh my god do I know about it to the point that I would probably have to ring a doctor like so I know that's a really big trigger. Um, but it, but other, other, other than that, a lot of the food I ate didn't really do a lot. I slowly saw that gluten made me more bloated, which just added to all the uncomfortable feelings I was having and all the pains and stuff I was having. So I slowly stopped eating gluten. Like I'd, I'd already done the trial gluten-free diet just to see if it was celiac disease or not. But I found that actually eating less gluten in general just helped. So I've been like that now for about seven years. I've been gluten-free mm -hmm. and that's massively made a difference. Um, and then about four years ago, uh, randomly I had a yogurt and then was really, really ill. And then the next day I'd had something like, I think I had a pasta with like a slightly creamy sauce and was really, really ill. And I was like, this is really strange. So it's never happened to me before. I had ice cream and I was really, really ill. So I just realized that, okay, dairy is not my thing. Mm -hmm. So I stopped having, I stopped dairy completely, but then I'd have the odd thing. And I realized that luckily, thank the Lord, I can still eat chocolate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would have been a process of grieving if I could no longer <laughs> eat chocolate. I definitely understand. I mean, <laughs> chocolate, especially like, you know, Cadbury, Cadbury chocolate, like, mm -hmm. oh, Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I can still eat that. Um, <laughs> I can still have like cheddar and mozzarella cheese, but I can't have anything more creamy. I can't have milk. So I have like oat milk or almond milk now. So I'm like mostly dairy free, mm -hmm. but that sort of came out of the blue. Like I was absolutely fine until one day that yogurt. No, just couldn't eat it. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've noticed a similar thing over the years where I'll be eating certain things and they seem just fine, but then all of a sudden it's like my body just changes and that food that I used to be able to eat is suddenly off limits and I can't tolerate it anymore. Uh, and actually a couple of years ago, I went, when I went back in, when I was referred back in before 
uh, my diagnosis, I went to see the nutritionist again and they showed me the low FODMAP diet. Mm -hmm. So they put me on that. um, And that was like a massive, like cutting out loads of stuff. And then you slowly introduce each food group at a time. So I had like this, I had so much paperwork, to be honest, it was quite overwhelming initially Mm -hmm. because I had to have a list up on my fridge. I had to like check that everything I was buying was on the list and you know, there, and I had to check ingredients and it was quite stressful. But uh, at that point, I would do anything to help what what was happening to me. Mm-hmm. So once I got used to it, it was OK. The hardest bit was onions, trying to keep onion, onions out of your diet when it's in every kind of sauce, like soups. It's the, the, oh, like onions are in everything. It, they like, are. That, that's been, yeah, literally everything. <laughs> and that's definitely a trigger because every time I have them, I'm not well. So unfortunately... That's something when I reintroduced straight away, knew that I wouldn't be able to eat that again. How long did you stay on the low FODMAP diet? Well, I'm, technically I'm sort of still on it because mm-hmm. I'm still introducing foods because the way you have to reintroduce is like um, you just take one at a time and you have to have a, a small piece of it on the first day. Then you have to, the second day you have to have a, like say two portions of what you had and then you have to have a bit more. So take it, if, for example, if it's like bread, you have to have like half a piece of bread on the first day then you have a whole piece of bread on the second day then you have one and a half pieces on the third day and then you have two pieces on the fourth day as long as you haven't had symptoms between so as Mm -hmm. soon as you get symptoms you stop and so and then you have to leave three or four days without like going back on the low FODMAP diet without eating that bread before you can reintroduce something else so (laughs) it takes weeks and weeks to reintroduce each food so far, I think I've managed garlic, but very occasionally. So I have a little bit of garlic. Mm-hmm. Red meat, again, very occasionally. I'm okay with the smaller amounts and every so often. Um, I can eat broccoli now. I can have mangoes now. Thank God, they're one of my favorite fruits. Mm-hmm. I was like mm-hmm. really sad when I couldn't have mangoes. Um, I was kind of, most, of, most of the stuff I couldn't have. But um, yeah, there's other little bits that I've had, like more vegetables I've been able to add in. Celery I can now eat um some other fruits i can eat bananas um can't remember what else i can have like lemon and lime stuff the citrusy mm-hmm. bits i can't have oranges flat out um but then my mum also gets really bad migraines with oranges so i don't know if there's a link there hmm. now do you have to limit the quantities when you're eating these foods some of the foods it sounds like you're now able to eat that you weren't able to before do you have to watch the quantity does that affect how it upsets your system um, the ones that I've completely reintroduced, apart from like the garlic and the red meat, mm-hmm. I can, at the moment, I've like, I eat like broccoli and carrots most days mm-hmm. and I seem to be fine with it. Um, obviously like broccoli is quite high in fiber, which I think was the issue before, but I found that I need that fiber because mm-hmm. when I cut it out completely, all my, all my digestion almost went the opposite way. Everything just like stopped. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so think that's been one of my key bits of fiber so most things i can just eat like i used used to eat them apart from the odd thing um but yeah it's still like a, an ongoing process really it's hard to do too it, it like you're talking about it just takes a lot of uh discipline and it's a very regimented yep. process to get through the whole thing yeah especially when you go out for dinner and you're like i really want that yeah, I just <laughs> yeah. Oh, the onions are in there right <laughs> Yeah, but there's onions in that, right? And in yeah. I when I, I didn't have ice cream for five years in a row. We finally got dairy free ice cream over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like the most exciting day. Of my life. 
God. And when I spent the summer in America, this, this summer, they have mint chocolate chip dairy-free in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. We don't have that over here yet. I ah. ate so much of that stuff. <laughs> I was like, they need to bring it over here because it's my favorite flavor and I've been waiting years for dairy-free I, mint chocolate chip ice cream. I can't believe they don't have it over there. What's the delay? <laughs> I was in heaven out there. You have so much variety. <laughs> we don't have that. I mean, it's, better. it's definitely getting better. I think mm. more people are having... People are choosing to do gluten and dairy-free diets and be vegan. So yes. we're getting a lot more, luckily, thankfully. So it helps people like me out that have mm. to eat that way. Um, but yeah, food's we, been a bit of a... I've had a weird relationship with food over the years and I'm slowly getting a better relationship with it. I'm not so afraid of eating now, which is good. Yeah, I've, had a, I've heard a lot of people say that. And I know I experienced the same thing too, where you really just become afraid of food. You're, you dread going out to restaurants. You don't want to go eat out places. It's just, it's a very stressful situation to, to have to look at food and think, I don't know what this is going to do. I'd rather not eat it. Yeah. So you're definitely not alone in that regard. Oh, no, definitely. Tell me a little bit about fitness because you're a very active person from skydiving to weightlifting. So tell me a little bit, how do you find, does fitness help you manage your IBD? It does, yeah. I find that obviously when I was like horrendously ill, it was something I really struggled to still do because fatigue was really bad. And every time I moved, I had like was nearly had an accident so that was hard mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me not to work out because I think for me fitness is is not just my physical health it's massively helps my mental health mm-hmm. and I just like being active I like the endorphins I like challenging myself I like pushing my body to see how far it can go and I've always since I was about 17 I started going to the gym when I was 16 17 mm-hmm. and just just because I wanted to be fit and I wanted to be healthy because I've I used to compete as a swimmer. So I used to be a competitive swimmer from when I was six years old hmm. all the way through till I was about 13. Um, and then for some reason I gave it up. I think in my early teenage brain, I couldn't be bothered to do the five o'clock in the morning wake up. Mm-hmm. So I gave it up, but I started teaching it instead and coaching it instead. And I've done that ever since. But I didn't really have that. I swam occasionally, but I didn't have that as much like of that fitness routine so when I was like 16, I, I was starting to get quite bored. So I started going to the gym and got into that. And I really liked seeing how my body changed and how my muscles grew and how I got so much stronger and so much fitter. And I started like beating a lot of my male friends. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm actually stronger than you. And I met loads of really cool people. And so I've always loved that environment. And like I said, I just like the challenge. So things like the skydive, I've done two of those now. Mm-hmm. I'd happily do a third. <laughs> I just like. It was, it's the most incredible thing. Like I like to, I like to be a bit scared and I like to try to go out of my comfort zone a bit mm-hmm. and um, see how that tests me. Um, but yeah, anything like that would like is um, bungee jumping is not maybe something I do. But well, that's surprising because yeah. I would think that would be um, less scary or easier than skydiving. <laughs> well, I don't know because I always thought that. Like I never say never because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, if someone dared me to do it, I'd do it. But the, the fact that, like, you go head first, mm-hmm. I mean, because when you skydive, like, obviously, the first time I skydived, I was so scared. And this was, I did it the first time was way before my diagnosis as well. So I was going through all that. And everyone knows that everyone gets a funny tummy when they're nervous anyway. 
Mm-hmm. So I arrived and just didn't eat all day long until I went up in that plane mm-hmm. and came out. The first time I did it, it was like, I thought you'd have that feeling of falling, but you don't. You feel like you're floating and it's the most incredible thing ever. And from that moment, I swore that I would just go and go headfirst into anything, any challenge anyone gave me because I didn't want to miss out on it feeling like that. And I didn't mm-hmm. want to miss out on experiences like that because it's just one of the most insane feelings in the world. Wow. And so, yeah, doing it again for Crohn's and Colitis UK this like this year. Are you doing it as a fundraiser? Is that what they're doing? Um, we're, we're, I, the first year I did it, I uh, did it for multiple sclerosis. And mm-hmm. this year when I did it, I did it for Crohn's and Colitis. Yeah, I did it as a charity. Oh, fantastic. What an incredible experience too to to have that feeling and then to be able to go back to it, like you're saying, of just seeking that same feeling, the exhilaration and just kind of motivating you through everything else. Yeah, definitely. That's probably that's pretty much why I went back to America this summer, to be honest, because after having three years of, I'd say probably hell and this disease almost taking over my life, I wanted to get my life back and mm-hmm. coming back. So I did like a, I did camp, a camp out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and worked and I did that back when I was at uni so when I was like 20 21 I did two years in a row at this camp and the camp got in contact with me and asked me to come back out and I was like I never would have thought this time last year that I'd be brave enough to get on a plane by myself again and go over to a, go anywhere to be honest let alone over to America mm-hmm. for as long as I did without worrying about what my body was going to do and how my Crohn's was going to behave I just went for it and wow loved every second of it and again like so good I could just put it almost took me back to me because I've spent too too long letting the disease control me last year mm-hmm. and like speaking to people on social media speaking to my friends speaking to my family I like I really wanted to get back to me again because I've, I've I'd lost part of me through this whole process and mm-hmm. so when I went out there this summer it just I just became me again like Crohn's is no no longer controls me I control it like yeah that's a great spot to be in tell me a little bit more about the trip how long did you spend out here and then what were some of the things that you did to help prepare to be here for so long and to be overseas just with medications and were there different things you did to help control your nerves and just keep Crohn's calm is there any sort of tips or tricks you had for such a long trip well, I I saw I spoke to obviously my consultant and said I was going, so I had to like organize um, collecting all my medication. I had to get um, like cool bags and stuff to keep my injections at the right temperature. Make sure I had all that with me. I had to take all of my um, paperwork, the letters and things you have to show the security, and I had to make sure all my medication was there. And I think for me, as long as I knew my medication was there. And I could maintain those two weekly injections and keep that going, considering it has served me so well mm-hmm. so far. I, I It was almost more a bit more of peace of mind. Going back to the same place that I'd been years before, and also there was still some of the same people there, mm-hmm. meant that for me that was, that was still like a known environment. I think if I'd been going somewhere brand new, I would have been far more anxious about it. Mm-hmm. But because people there knew me, they knew me before my diagnosis as well as after my diagnosis they you know I've been friends with them for well I hadn't been back for seven years yet I'd kept in touch with them for seven years so going back over there was just seeing them and talking to them I felt comfortable already which massively helped Mm -hmm. but 
in terms of like worrying about my Crohn's, like obviously I still was anxious. Like what happens if I get a flare when I'm out there? What happens if it's really bad? Like I had to obviously get medical insurance and all of that. But I was like, I don't, how will I cope with it? And then I realized that it doesn't matter where I am in the world. I'm going to cope with it the same way I do at home. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to rest up if I need to rest up. Like the people that employed me at camp, they were they were like, anything you need, you just tell us. They put me at ease. Like I was open with them straight away. I told them that I'd need access to a bathroom all the time. I'd need to like, I'd need no questions asked if I needed to go. I need no questions asked. Like I don't want people asking me all the time if I'm okay. I just need to be able to ask ask for this and you give it to me or... Mm-hmm. I spoke to them about my nutrition and I actually end up having a chef there that specialized in like dietary requirements. So mm-hmm. obviously I wasn't the only one at camp. Some of the kids and some of the other staff had um, needs and stuff, but it meant that I basically had food cooked specially for me the whole time I was out there. Um, and so I arrived at like beginning of June and I didn't, didn't come home to the end of August. So I was out there for nearly three months. Oh, wow. And well, it's the it's the best I've felt since my diagnosis, and I think that's just because I relaxed and I took more of a take each day as it comes and just enjoy every second of it because it's an amazing experience. And I had that mindset, mm-hmm. and it, to be honest, in order to get there, I when my anxiety was really bad, I I employed a hypnotherapist to help me with that, and oh, I had wow. hypnotherapy. I had four sessions of hypnotherapy because. For me, like the doctors were like, oh, you can have an antidepressant for that. We can give you this for that. But the pills weren't going to stop. They were going to quiet quiet my mind, but not actually target the cause mm-hmm. because it's all like your inner thoughts and stuff. Like I've, I like, looked it up and I was like, I need something that will help me do this. And I started like meditating and using, using uh, the app called Headspace mm-hmm. just because it was like 10 minutes here, there. I would do before work. I would do sometimes in the middle of the day if I was having a bit of an anxiety attack and I would just use that. That helped amazingly, but it wasn't until I got my hypnotherapist in and she was incredible. Like I went from someone who would only go, the only time I went out the house was to go to work and would genuinely like, like my heart would race and I'd have the sweats walking around the store just collecting food for the mm-hmm. for the evening or food for the week. I'd, I'd run in the the store and and think of the quickest route I could to get in and out of there before I was like sick or before before Mm -hmm. I had like a massive panic because I was that anxious like and she took me from that to be able to fly on my own to America like she helped me get in that in that mindset yeah and it's so amazing how our bodies really do respond to just the stress and anxiety and our our mindset it there really is that mind body the gut the mind gut connection it's it's there and so what an incredible yeah. experience to go through the hypnotherapy and to have that help is it something that you're going to continue yeah like i haven't had anything since but it's not uh, it's something i will i will definitely do in the future obviously it's quite expensive but mm-hmm. it was worth it for me at the time and i've had enough for now that i know i can use some of the techniques so some of the things she taught me were like imagine the worst case scenario now, what will you do in that scenario? So every scenario that could have possibly happened in America or can possibly happen even just day to day, I already had a solution of how I was going to get out of that or how I was going to work through that. So even if I'd had the worst flare up in the world, I already had an action plan. Like I'll do this, I'll speak to that person, I'll do this. 
and it'll be fine. So, it, it, well, obviously, those worst case scenarios that you build up in your head, they, they never happened because most of the time they never do. Mm-hmm. But it meant I already felt prepared rather than just totally out of my depth. And I think just strategies like that massively helped. And knowing that I could take five minutes away and meditate if I needed to, or mm-hmm. just do some breathing exercises, or just focus like in the moment. It doesn't matter what's going to happen tomorrow. It doesn't matter what's going to happen in an hour's time. Like I, I, for the first time in God knows how long, I ate three meals a day wow. when I was at camp. I haven't done that in about five years and I ate mm-hmm. three meals a day and by the end of camp I was eating three meals a day and snacks mm-hmm. and I was fine and I was eating and everything was fine I didn't have any symptoms I had the odd twinge or the odd cramp but it was nothing on what I was experiencing before and so just knowing I could do that and that's given me the confidence when I've come home to start eating out so I've actually eaten out but even just the last couple of weeks more times the last couple mm-hmm. of weeks than I've eaten last seven years and to be able to go into a restaurant and eat without even thinking Mm -hmm. is just small it's a small thing to some people but for me it's just like the biggest thing in the world yeah I think for many people with Crohn's and colitis it's a big thing oh it's huge now do you still continue to do the meditation yes yeah I do yeah and actually I do it most nights before I go to sleep but Mm -hmm. um on the app I've got so the headspace app I use it's you got meditation for different reasons. So there's meditation for mindful eating, which was one thing I was using a lot to try and get my brain into the sense of food is not the enemy. Mm-hmm. And there's meditation for sleep. There's meditation if you're feeling angry, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling, if you need motivation, if you need to stop procrastinating, if you need uh, any any kind of, if you're having um, relationship problems, like there's there's a meditation for every kind of problem or issue you may possibly have in your life on that app. So you can just select and it can be five minutes or 25 minutes. You can sort of choose how long you want to do it for. And the first time I did it, sat on my living room floor, like with my eyes shut. Like, yeah, I found it quite funny. Like Mm -hmm. it's a bit of a taboo. Like it's the weirdest thing I've ever done. But since I've done it, it it has changed my mindset and things. And it's made me stop because I found that being a teacher, you're busy all the time. You're constantly working. Like I worked seven days a week all year round, even in the holidays didn't really stop and take a minute for me. So just having those five minutes for me just massively helped, just ground me a little bit and Mm -hmm. calm everything down just to reduce those stress levels. That's a great tip. And and being able to just use it whenever. It's on my phone, so I can just click it whenever I like. (laughs) Yeah. I uh, I think more people need to start integrating that meditative practice because it really does just puts you in a whole different spot. It's it's peaceful, it's calming, and it just really kind of gets you ready to either take on the day or gets you ready to sleep and enjoy the night. <laughs> oh, it does. And actually, like, I found now that if I put a meditation on, I don't even hear the end of it because I'm asleep. Uh-huh. <laughs> it helps me just switch off completely and actually sleep rather uh-huh. than having, like, a fit sleep. I'm just out for the count. So That's great. It's it helped. Definitely. So tell me about some of the tips you have found over the years on how you've been able to manage flares and your symptoms. Since you've spent most of this entire time in a flare-up, what are some of the things that you would do in the past to help you kind of get through your toughest days? Um, I guess the, the fundamental thing that I do is drink loads of water. When I'm really flaring, 
I try and just get like hydrate myself as much as possible because I know that when I'm not like it makes me feel 10 times worse I get headaches like you feel really fatigued even more than normal so I drink tons of water and I mean like eight to ten liters a day Mm -hmm. um just to keep me hydrated and sometimes it's the only thing I consume um if I'm in a really bad flare I will starve my body and just let it settle give it Mm -hmm. some time so I'm not just constantly giving it more food to try and digest properly Mm -hmm. um I just starve it and that could be for the morning that could be um for the whole day and the whole night depending on how I am um I don't I try and avoid taking pain medicine so mm-hmm. I avoid taking paracetamol and, and obviously definitely don't take any ibuprofen because that's just mm-hmm. going to make things worse. But I try and avoid that because I find that it doesn't actually do anything anyway because the pain's so bad. But it's just putting something, another chemical in my body that's not really going to help. So I try and just get as much rest as possible. And let's face it, flares always happen when you least want them to. They're mm-hmm. never convenient. They never happen when, you know, you've got time off or... Mm-hmm. They always happen when you've got loads to do, but if it's happening, it's telling me my body needs to slow down. So I just listen to my body and think, right, I Good. need to make sure that I'm enough rest. I need to make sure I'm hydrated. I need to make sure I've got all the nutrients I need. And sometimes that can just be having soup and almost like a liquid diet just to help digestion if necessary. Mm-hmm. It might be going for yoga or meditation rather than a hardcore session at the gym. Mm-hmm. but just trying to keep that going what I try and avoid doing is lying in bed all day because that doesn't help it for me that doesn't help my mental health I might lie on the sofa and you know move around the chairs in the living room might mm-hmm. sit on the floor sit on the sofa mm-hmm. move all day but I get up and get dressed because I think mentally that helps you feel better straight away it does tell me I saw something on your Instagram that you mentioned peppermint capsules. Is that something you use frequently or how have you found that to help in the past? I used to use them every day and it was mainly when I was really nauseous and I still do. So if I have a really bad nause- like nausea in the day that I'll use them and I still have them. So if I feel like I'm not really digesting things properly, I'll have one or sometimes I have them on flights because obviously, especially flying long haul, I found that I couldn't eat plain food even the specialist diet plain food they had because it did not sit well with me all the pressures in the plane mm-hmm. they make everything in norm everyone in with normal digestive um, systems like swell up and you know get irritated so I found I couldn't really do that but at the same time I still needed food so I would take them and that would just help it does help the digestion but it particularly helped my nausea mainly mm-hmm. but yeah I do still have them and I also have aloe vera capsules that I take at night um, and in the morning, I have a little like, I have multivitamins and B12 and calcium and vitamin D that I take mm-hmm. every single day. I take like the lowest dose. And then if I get a cold or I get some sort of virus, like other than my Crohn's, I can at least double that dose. And I find that the vitamins alone usually get rid of the cold like faster than I've ever had before, even though I'm immune suppressed. Like it's amazing. Wow. Those are great tips. Good things to keep in mind. So tell me, what compelled you to start sharing your Crohn's journey and to start becoming an advocate for IBD? Well, I think when I first had a sort of a diagnosis, I started like looking looking people up, basically. I was like, there must be people out there that have the same thing as me. So I went on Instagram and just typed it in and so many people came up 
and I started reading all their stories and seeing how they were really poorly and now they're really well. And actually sometimes seeing people that have been in and out of hospital and been admitted like 10, 12 times in a few months, it made me realize that, whoa, I'm actually lucky. Mm-hmm. And my gosh, what must they be going through if they're actually having to be in the hospital? And I, I never had to stay in a hospital. I went in, I've had one day where I spent the day in a hospital, but I've never stayed in there overnight. I've never had to, I'm really lucky in that sense. Either that or I'm just stupid because I've stayed at home when I've been really ill mm-hmm. and just not called anyone, <laughs> um, which I've been told a few times. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, seeing all that and seeing how much worse I could be that that helped because I was like okay things could be worse (laughs) um Mm -hmm. but there's also all these people and everyone was so friendly I found that like I could just message people and ask questions and straight away they'd reply and they were just so open and kind about it and they helped me and it made me want to help other people but at the same time having my own Instagram gave me a platform that I could talk about it because I found that I'd almost exhausted the conversations with my family and my friends and no one that I lived with or none of my family or my friends had the same thing as me. So no one, no one really understands until they get go through as much as they try, as much as they've been amazingly supportive and I wouldn't like change it for the world. They don't understand it because they, they're not going through it. So it was really good talking to like other people that really got it and being able to be like complain without being judged all the time and like, complain about the same things as I said before trying to complain about the same symptoms every day you just think oh I must be boring these people when actually I know that everyone on my on my like Crohn's Instagram family they all they've all heard it before and they don't care if you say it again mm-hmm. they just want to know they just want to help exactly and I've met so many people on there and it's been like it's definitely helped enormously and just even just sharing pictures sometimes I just share pictures for me I'm like I need to post this because I'm feeling rubbish mm-hmm. and I need to tell someone and that someone's just going to be my little community there I don't care if people don't message back I just needed to tell someone because mm-hmm. I need to get it off my chest sort of thing we really do have an amazing IBD community that is on social media because just like you I've had so many people that, you know, you can reach out and ask a question and everyone is so incredibly friendly and supportive and it really is just an incredible place to be. So I really encourage everyone to to find the IBD community that's, you know, on Instagram, on Facebook, because it's it really is a great group of people <laughs> that's out there. And it's so, so easy to find as well. Mm-hmm. And like once you've gone on one profile, you know, there's links to other profiles and everyone you find that everyone is following everyone exactly no there's no trolling on there there's no there's no question is a silly question either so i find that sometimes you like i i went through moments where i was like am i gonna die (laughs) because i felt that unwell and i lived on my own as well which obviously made it harder because there was i thought what if i don't wake up in the morning because i was in like bleeding so much i was in the bathroom on my own i was like i don't I don't know. There's no one I could call people right now. I had loads of friends I could call that would have been there in a second, but you don't want to interrupt them. I didn't want to bug them again. I knew they needed to also get up for work the next day. So it was like messaging these people like, this is happening to me. Should I go to the hospital or will I be okay? Yeah. Like what should I do? And, and that was like, everyone was just there straight up. And it's a community that everyone has been maybe not in the exact same position, but we all understand where we're each coming from because we've all gone through 
this horrible disease and we've all got our own experiences to draw upon. And so it's, it's easy yeah. to rely on each other. Yeah. And I found people that maybe have got it worse than me still don't undermine my disease and how mm -hmm. my, my journey with it. Like they don't think, oh yeah, but I'm worse than you. So I don't know what you're complaining about. They're still really sympathetic. They're still like, yeah, this is rubbish. Like, I really hope that gets better for you. I hope this helps. Like, try this. Mm -hmm. And even though, if, even if they're stuck up, you know, in hospital on a drip, like being tube fed, like they're still, they're still there for you. They are. So if people want to find you online and follow you, where can they do that? Uh, Instagram, I'm mainly um, crony in the classroom because, you know, teacher reference. Mm -hmm. um, or you can follow my personal page, which is at Jennifer Amy. A-M-I, Jennifer Amy, spelled A-M-I. Perfect. Um, but yeah, mainly on Instagram. I mean, I'm Jennifer Amy on Facebook, but I'm more, I'm more sort of active on my Instagram. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes for all of our listeners to go ahead and, and find you and, and follow your journey a little bit. Is there anything that I did not ask that you wanted to share today? One thing that I did find out over the years, and I don't know how true this is, so... Like, I'm not going to say it's scientific fact. I'm not going to say everyone should freak out about it. But mm -hmm. it's something I've learned and I've talked to a lot of people around me. Um, but And I've done some research on it. And there is a lot of research. So, like, feel free to, you know, Google as much as you like. Mm -hmm. But women and girls, especially young women and girls that are on the contraceptive pill, like, read, read the information leaflet that it comes with because... I didn't do that, not fully, and it wasn't until my sister read it and said, hey, hang on a minute, right at the bottom it said, like, it can exacerbate or cause IBD, um, particularly Crohn's disease. So I immediately, as soon as she showed me that, I immediately stopped taking um, my pill, and I have been off that nearly eight, nine months now, and almost within the week of me stopping it, I felt, like, ten times better. Oh, wow. Like, even though I was on my medication, something in me shifted. Like, I just, it's like it wasn't, I couldn't explain it. And it you know, some people might say it was psychological. I don't know. But something in me changed. And, I mean, I spent a fair few months of my hormones trying to balance out, which, you know, every girl knows is slight hell. But mm -hmm. now, yeah, everything's better. Like, like, I think that contributed to me being able to eat the way I did and still continue to eat the way I am because there's little symptoms that just aren't there anymore yeah and uh, um and in fairness if I look back when I was 16 and I started taking it that's when all my symptoms started and I didn't link the two back then but if any any I've said to any young girls any women that have started it and suddenly notice a change in their digestive mm -hmm. functions anything that doesn't quite feel right you know kind of look into that because I'm not saying that has caused my Crohn's, but there's re a whole load of research online that says that it, there's a possibility. And everyone knows that IBD, they don't fully know the full causes of IBD. So that's something to be aware of. It's a great tip and information to consider. And just like you're talking about, there's a lot of, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of information out there that talks about Crohn's and IBD as being this multifactorial where it has to be this perfect storm of a little bit of genetics, a little bit of environment, and then maybe there's something that's kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so it's all of these different things. And so definitely that's a, a great piece of information to uh, to look into and have people, you know, 
maybe make that connection for themselves if they're noticing that too. So it's a great tip. As I said, it's not like, it's not fact. I don't know it for real. It could be that, you know, I already had Crohn's and, it, and that just made it worse because it yeah. does say it exacerbates symptoms mm-hmm. or, or can be the cause. So if people have got IBD already, then look into that. You know, you don't want to yeah. make anything worse. Um, and there's other contraceptive stuff out there that like I'm, I'm currently on nothing because I don't want to put any more yeah. drugs in my system at the moment. Just <laughs> exactly. A bit more natural, but it was definitely something that I probably should have looked at before. And I can't, it's kind of something I wish I knew about before. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've talked to people about it and I've said, hey, you know, some of my friends that have a bit of digestive discomfort, I'm like, well, maybe, you know, look at that. Like, don't, don't keep on it and end up like me potentially. Like, be aware that that could be a problem. Yeah, it's always great to be aware of what we're doing, and what we're putting into our bodies. So I think that's a great tip. Great piece of info there. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. I really appreciate you jumping on with me today and sharing your story and helping to raise a little bit more awareness for IBD. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an IBD story, either as a patient or a family member that you'd like to share as a guest on this podcast, or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email at Crohn'sFitnessFood at gmail.com. If you'd like to learn more about me and my Crohn's journey, follow me on Instagram using at Crohn'sFitnessFood or visit my blog for in-depth articles about my struggles and victories with Crohn's through diet, fitness, and lifestyle at www.Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And finally, remember, be strong, be grateful, and be the warrior that you are.